Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Harry A. Frank was an American writer and traveler who came to southern China in the mid-1920s. Born in 1881, he would work as a policeman on the Panama Canal and also serve in France during the First World War. He traveled across the world after he graduated, that time earning passage across the Atlantic on a cattle boat. For his other travels, he wrote as he went along, sending articles of his observations to American newspapers and his completed book manuscripts. When coming back to America, he would tour, giving talks of his travels and impressions. In 1923, Wandering in Northern China was published, and then in 1925, his book, Roving Through Southern China, an American's Explorations of Hong Kong, Macau and Canton in the early 1920s. Author Paul French has abridged and annotated this book, which takes the reader through Hong Kong, Macau and onto Guangzhou and surroundings at a time of great change. Hong Kong has just had the seamen strike and there's plenty of unrest bubbling away in Canton with the New Republic struggling to keep a hold of territory. There are warlords, industrial unrest and smallpox. But as Harry Frank describes in his book, it's also a time of excitement and growth as Guangzhou modernises its streetscape and housing. But also, like in Hong Kong, there's a great wealth difference and plenty of poverty with workers on the street eking out a living. Roving Through Southern China is one of four books by authors from the 1880s through to the 1920s who all come to southern China and which Paul French has annotated and abridged for a series called China Revisited, which is published by Blacksmith Books. The first thing I found fascinating about Harry Frank is despite the risk of smallpox, the driving habits of people in new cars, industrial and other unrest, Harry is not a solo traveller on this extended trip. His wife comes too, as do the children and his mother. He obviously was never worried about travelling around with them because, um, you know, he kept on moving and they would occasionally go and visit him in places. He toured around the whole of the north of China, which at that time involved going into newly Japanese-occupied Korea as well, which was quite dangerous at the time. But when he came to southern China, he had this, when he says southern China, he means everything south of Shanghai, down as far as Hong Kong, and everything up towards Sichuan as well, and Yunnan. So quite a big area to cover. And he decided it was going to take a long time. And he decided that it was very difficult to move around, which it was at that time. It, was, it took a long time to get from place to place. So he brought his family, which was his wife, who he had married in the First World War, who was quite intrepid. He'd met her when she was a nurse in, in Europe in the First World War, and his two young children. And also he brought with him his mother. And he says in the book that it's the only time that she ever roved she, she never left her hometown, really, and he managed to persuade her to go to southern China at a time when Hong Kong was quite chaotic at the end of the big seamen strike. Canton, Guangzhou, was in an absolute messy state with all sorts of uprisings, strikes, and Sun Yat-sen's government trying to cement itself and consolidate itself against the, the warlords across the rest of the country. So it was a, a slightly crazy time to bring your whole family and live in China. But he did it, and they, we, well, of course, we don't have his children's view on that. His wife seems to have been quite supportive. Many years later, she wrote a memoir saying that she enjoyed her time in China. So they were obviously a very intrepid family. He called himself the Prince of Vagabonds, and then he talks about his vagabonding family. But because he was sort of 
staying for quite some time in Hong Kong and then again renting a house in Canton, he decided to call this particular book Roving, which is apparently somewhat different to vagabonding. <laughs> So as you say, he's there at the time of the seaman strike or just after, travelling through Hong Kong, Macau and Canton. And uh, what would you say when you look at Harry Frank? I mean, I learnt quite a lot through this particular account of this area at that time and particularly, as you say, the, the turbulence of the 1920s. So it's interesting that this man decides to bring his family to a place that's a little bit risky, but he was quite a veteran traveller by then. I mean, South America. Oh, he was a veteran traveller. He'd been in the um, Canal Zone Police Force in Panama. He'd been in the First World War with the American Army. He travelled around uh, Latin America. He travelled all around Europe, post-First World War Germany and so on, which, which was his ancestry. Yes. He'd also travelled, as I say, around Japan, Formosa, as was then, Taiwan, and then he had travelled around Korea and Manchuria. So he was very well travelled. What I find interesting about him, a little like the Harry Hervey book that we did last year, is it's always interesting to see particularly Hong Kong through the eyes of an American, a Republican, not someone who's built into the whole British class system and colonial way of doing things, someone who's looking at it from outside and can see some of its faults and some of its perhaps advantages in, in some ways. So he's, so he's interesting in that sense. And when he goes to Canton, he goes to Canton at a time of great change, not just political but also just infrastructural the walls of the city are being knocked down macadam roads are being laid and he, he sees all of this through the eyes of someone who comes from america where there are many new cities that are doing similar big construction projects like this he doesn't see it through the eyes of a european from an older world if you like and so therefore his sympathies are different and his predictions of the outcomes of all of this are quite different as well when I'm reading his account, I mean, at the beginning, I have to say, I was like, is this man just about description, which would work, of course, if you're then making your money by sending books back to America. And <laughs> I was thinking of you when you're writing your books and all the changes that your publisher might like. He seemed to just package off his, his books. And uh, of course, there wasn't any form of communication. So off it went and got published. But he would then go back and give talks. And initially, when I'm reading Roving Through Southern China by Harry Frank, I'm like, is he just going to give a description of everything? Uh, which he does very well. He manages to get the sense of the street life of Hong Kong, but also the sandpans and the boat people. But what I realised after a while is that he's decidedly empathetic towards the lot of women. There's yeah. the hacker women, particularly yeah. on the building sites, breaking up rocks, carrying this huge burden of rocks to make their money while having a baby on their back. So there's women, but also the lot of workers generally. Yeah, I mean, when he goes to Hong Kong, of course, he's over on Kowloon side. And it's at the time that the sort of hills, uh, not quite mountains, but hills are being sort of smashed to pieces, literally by hand and often by women in bare feet with babies on their backs, as you say. And then that uh, rubble is going in as landfill. So the very shape of Kowloon is changing. And he can see this because he first visited Hong Kong in 1904. He comes back about 1923, so 20 years later. So, you know, a lot has gone on in that 20 years in Hong Kong. The tramway system has been developed. Kowloon's suburbs are sprawling outwards. The amount of traffic in the harbour, steamships and so on, has grown exponentially as far as he can see. And so he's finding all of that 
really interesting. It's good to see, you know, 20 years is a good gap to go and look at somewhere and then go back and look at it again and see real change and also what stayed the same. And when he goes to Canton as well, he very much is looking at what is the role of women here in, in this new Republic of China. Well, yes, shopkeepers, handicrafts, mothers, obviously, dealing with all sorts of little businesses. He talks about the florists out at Honam, which was a sort of market garden area and so on. But he also talks about the flower boats, the eternal flower boats that every foreigner writes about with the prostitutes and the sea people there and of course he has a very good idea actually which is for american cities which is the, the best way to overcome the lack of housing affordable housing and the way to get around this would be to encourage people to all live on boats <laughs> you know so uh, i'm not sure how that works in an inland city he's like you know maybe 10 percent, 15 percent of the population lives on a boat right which is quite incredible and he's completely blown away by that he also, I mean, when he's describing, there's a lot of uh, fresh approach. Obviously, there are, I mean, it made me smile how he enters Hong Kong, because I think every writer of that era enters Hong Kong with a reference to Misty Hills. Oh, yeah. And then yeah. he's over to Macau, uh, which you yourself write a lot about. And we're, we're back in the, the casinos, the gambling dens, this, this idea, which I'm not saying doesn't exist in Macau. You write yourself about um, some of the tropes that he, he uses in terms of, but do you think it was a bit of a gambling den in the 1920s? Do you know, when he goes there, I think it was. Um, Macau, obviously, you know, and he makes the point, of course, it was like there 300 years before a British ship turned up or anything. But when he's there in the 1920s, really Macau's economy, outside of gambling and tourism, is, is on its uppers. It hasn't really got much beyond firecrackers, fireworks, a bit of incense and so on. And that's largely because, you know, Portugal is not putting in the same kind of money to Macau that, that London is putting into, into Hong Kong. It hasn't got the same kind of trading thing. And mainly, which people, you know, one of those simple things that people often don't write about, but I think is really important. They never dredged the harbour, right? So you can't get big ships into Macau. It couldn't develop a port in the way that um, Hong Kong would. Everyone had to go and stay up in the Taipa roads and it, it, was, it was not easy. So it was kind of running, running down. And Guangzhou in southern China was becoming a very vibrant economy under the new republic. Uh, Hong Kong was, of course, doing quite well, even despite seamen strikes and other labor troubles. But, you know, labor troubles usually come when there's actually quite a good economy, right? Because people realize they can get some more wages and so on. Just to cut in there, I was absolutely amazed with uh, the seamen strike to, to read. And I think it's one of your annotations on the book that workers could actually, that it was that booming, that, that workers could, were actually demanding and were regarded as seriously uh, 25 to 30% right, wage rises. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, the seamen strike was a long fought, big battle. And of course, it extended beyond seamen to other transport workers and other, and other mm. groups of workers. And it was also um, a good example of the ability to connect up Hong Kong to Canton and the Pearl River Delta with workers seeing their ways through whichever companies they worked for, which were mostly foreign owned. And the colonial government just sort of sat back and didn't want to get involved and just sort of said to the ship owners, well, you know, you need to sort this out. And so eventually it did get sorted out. And I think it's fair to say, although they didn't get exactly what everything that they wanted, it was a win. For, for the Chinese seamen. And it did change conditions on those coastal steamers and, and cargo boats. But it had been a, a, probably the biggest period of industrial turmoil, organized labor in Hong Kong. And just as that was ending, there was lots and lots of industrial agitation happening up in Canton. And we know that while Harry Frank is there and afterwards it gets you know, worse and worse and it becomes more and more political. It turns into boycott movements. It turns into anti-foreign riots sometimes. 
it turns into real heavy fighting between different factions. And we know if you read Andre Malraux's novel, The Conquerors, right, he, he talks all about 1923, 1924 in, in Canton. So he's right there at a time when, okay, things are settling down in Hong Kong a little bit, but they're, they're not settling down in Canton at all. And, and what, of course, the colonial government is always worried about is, you know, there'll be a reinfection, as they would see it, of labour agitation in the colony. So that's going on in Hong Kong. As you say, it's quietening down, but that, that industrial action does carry on bubbling after 1922. And uh, over, as you say, in Canton, it's, it's, uh, there's a bit of insurrection as well. And of course, Sun Yat-sen, by now an old man, he's going to die in 1925 yeah. and, uh, you know, and the warlords are taking yeah. advantage. In Macau, as you say, they haven't dredged the harbour. The Portuguese have a completely different kind of enclave over there and uh, so he arrives after his visit to and he's toing and froing a little bit as you say he rents houses but he's over in Macau and uh, he takes the four is it the four hour steamer he describes mm-hmm. and there he is and what I found also interesting with Macau is the number of different soldiers largely yeah. but um, people coming in from different parts of the Portuguese uh, yeah. colonies at that point yeah well he, he notes the large number of soldiers from Mozambique, the Portuguese uh, West Africa. What he doesn't note, which is really important to understand, is if you've got the seamen strike and the other strikes going on in Hong Kong, and you've got this rise of striking and boycott movements and political faction fighting going on in Canton, the two years previously, you had had a series of insurrections by the army in Macau, in the barracks. And this had been due to pay and conditions and being away from home for too long. And it had mostly been the Portuguese, the European Portuguese soldiers that had risen up. It had been slightly uncoordinated. Some barracks had risen up, others hadn't. Some barracks had helped repress other barracks, but it had been a total mess. There was also then a number of civilians who had sort of taken on that movement. This was also to do with things that were going on in politics back in Portugal and had tried to declare a Republic of Macau. That had also unnerved the governor as well. So the governor's response was to bring in colonial troops who he believed if he needed to turn them on the European troops or if he needed to turn them on the Portuguese civilians that were arguing for a Republic of Macau, though that was a very small movement, that that could happen. In the end, most of the soldiers were rotated back to Portugal just because they got them out of it. And then a few of the civilian insurrectionaries were packaged off to Portugal's sort of version of Devil's Island or transportation to Australia, which was to go to Timor, Portuguese Timor, or they fled to Hong Kong, where they started up anti-Portuguese colonial newspapers and so on. Now, the interesting aspect with Harry Franks roving through southern China is not only do you have what would have been originally an 800-page book, but you've taken it, annotated it, often working in the London Library here in, in St. James's Park or near St. James's Park. And so we've got all of your notes at the bottom. And, and so I'm learning through that. For example, that in 1920s Macau, and I'm sure they're there before, but uh, Frank actually points out that there are Japanese religious refugees in Macau, a kind of Huguenot. Yes, well, these were, you know, the Portuguese, of course, went to Japan and made converts. And eventually they were persecuted in Japan and killed or or kicked out and then had gone to Macau. It became sort of doubly difficult when Portugal repressed the Jesuit movement as well, who had been most of the original missionaries. So it all gets very complicated in internal Roman Catholic Church politics. But Frank notes that some of these people are still around and they have, of of course, they're not the same people, but, but the families are still around. And he refers to them as kind of Japanese Huguenots, referring to the French Protestants that were expelled by Cardinal Richelieu and mostly ended up here in in London. He notes that and he notes how it's a very multicultural place. You know, the Mozambican troops, he noticed the number of Eurasians, which is something else that people always note after Hong Kong. 
He notes that the Portuguese themselves, of course, Spanish traders. Mm, and um, there's Goans. Goans. Hindus, Sikhs. Of course, Parsis. I mean, everyone who was involved in the China trade has some sort of presence in Macau as well. So here's Harry A. Frank talking about his view of Macau. Graft reigns supreme in Macau. Everyone squeezes. Down to the police patrolling the cobbled streets. Gambling, opium, prostitution are the only reasons for its existence. Portuguese government officials with salaries of 100 mex dollars a month have big, luxurious houses, a dozen servants, expensive automobiles, mistresses in silks and jewels. It's the only Portuguese colony, they say, that pays dividends. He's not a keen fan of gambling. He sees it as rather a, a, a boring activity. Um, is there a bit of, you know, he's German ancestry. Is there a bit of German puritanism coming in into the fact that he's saying it's rather a, a useless quest? He, he doesn't see perhaps the fun and the anticipation. Yes, he likes to see industry. He likes to see people building things. Or he's even slightly nervous about what they're knocking down in order to build, particularly in Canton. But he's, he's interested to see that. So, you know, just levelling leveling ground in order to do landfill to, to change the boundaries of Kowloon, absolutely fantastic. You know, what's going on with taking the walls down in Canton and tarmacadaming the roads, absolutely fantastic. And then, of course, there's the contrast of just what he considers to be this louche, somewhat lazy, dissolute world of Macau, which, of course, you know, was very attractive to Hong Kongers on a weekend. <laughs> Still is. <laughs> exactly. Um, and that's what those ferries were there for. And that's where the hotel industry was, was booming. If there was a boom in Macau, it was accommodation for Hong Kong weekenders. So. You always, uh, in your introduction, of course, these books are written 100 years ago. And some of them date back to the mid-19th century, these four that you've put as part of this China Revisited series. But the fact is, yes, there are clear impressions of what he's seeing, what he's observing, and it's from his standpoint. But do you still think that he gets a good handle on the places that he's visiting? Yes, I think so. I think by the 1920s, and I look at this series, and I think the two that are most easy to read for the contemporary audience are Harry Hervey in 1924 and Harry Frank there around the same time. Some of the earlier ones often very religious and very keen you know they're missionary in their way of doing it so they have very scant regard for chinese customs and, and practices and beliefs and they're often very demeaning of them there is some language that we'd warn you about at the start and then try and work out where these terms came from what they meant and and the fact that for instance with the term chinaman for instance i mean certainly from the 1920s there were people lobbying the oxford english dictionary and Merriam webster's in in america to not use that term to change that term uh, seeing it as not a term that should be used and this was due of course to the rise of people going to cities like shanghai where they were operating with alongside the chinese and also to the number of chinese students coming to america particularly in the early 20th century so so some of the language is a bit outdated but again frank is an american he is an ardent republican he is keen to see China succeed. It is a Republican experiment and he wants it to succeed. And so he's keen to see what is happening. He wants also having been to Northern China and seen the, the warlord rampaging around up there, he's keen to see Sun Yat-sen succeed, to build a new modern China. And so of course, whenever he's looking at the new wharfs that are being built along the Bund in Canton, and when he's looking at the, the new macadamed roads, when he's looking at the new housing blocks being built, he himself goes to live in um, Saiquan, which is now Xiguan in Guangzhou. And that's really interesting in itself because at that time, 
Siquan was a new suburb. And if you go there now, it's architecturally a very interesting place because it was largely built in the 1920s. They took down the old wall of Canton. It's just beyond what is Charmian Island or Charmian Island, the foreign enclave there. And they build this area of new housing blocks and shops and straight thoroughfare roads. It's very different to the very center of Canton. That's a very different Canton to the Victorian writers who go and see these teeming little streets. And it's all being done. But he's, he's aware that all this is new, all this is great. They're putting in tram systems, they're putting in new ferry systems, they're, they're doing all of this. But he's also aware that it's the only city in China, and it is at that time, that is taking down its ancient city walls. And of course, you know, if you go to Nanjing, Xi'an or other cities, you can still see the city walls. And the city walls in Beijing were only taken down in the 1950s. There's still a little bit survives there. There's still a little bit survives even in Shanghai around the old Chinese city. But Guangzhou is really the center of modernity in China at this point. And so taking down the walls is like what you do. It's modern. We want to bring in motor cars. We want to bring in trains. You know, Sun Yat-sen was a train nut, right? And we want to bring in all of this modern stuff. We want motorized boats to take you around like the ferries were in Hong Kong to places that will take you out to these new suburbs. And he goes and lives in this new suburb, which I think is kind of fascinating. You know, he experiences this, this whole new world that's being built and literally is just being built around him. The end of his street, he comments, is just market gardens, it's fields, muddy areas that haven't yet been built on that are being drained before foundations can be sunk. And this is a really unique look at how modern Guangzhou starts to be built in the 1920s and through the 1930s. Yeah, he does comment. It's very interesting, his picture. I mean, he has got these aspects of the peddlers, the beggars, the boatmen who are all struggling in this new China. There isn't an economic parity at all. But he's also describing the transport and there's a part where, you know, it's, it seems to be a little bit warlord gangster land. He, he describes a car with, is it people with rifles or I think machine guns or something? Yeah, no, on definitely. The side. I mean, this is, a, this is a time when there are lots of political factions in Canton. There are warlords still around. The Republican government, although we're nearly, you know, what are we, nearly 10 years in, into the new republic, it's still very fragile. Um, you know, and doesn't control that much of the country at that time. Not much at all outside of Guangdong province, really. And even then, its, it's remit is quite questionable. So we're seeing a government trying to embed itself, trying to bring modernity to people, trying to change so much, not just building an infrastructure and transport, but trying to change the position of women, trying to change the education system, trying to modernize the military, which of course is where we get Chiang Kai-shek and the Wampoa Military Academy and so on down there. They're doing so much. But it's really, at the time Frank is there, the jury is still out on whether they're going to pull this off and whether or not the country won't sink into warlordism, perhaps at best, perhaps restore the monarchy. There's moves going on in the north for that. Or this idea, which seems bizarre now, but, you know, really runs through 20th century Chinese history, at least, that the whole country could just fall apart into, into different fiefdoms. And one of your favourite subjects, you know, there's so much piracy going on that i mean i was again somehow i don't know whether i really had accepted just the level of piracy that, that goes on around uh, at this time to the point where is it sort of like lloyds or people like that will be saying as part of ship insurance that you have to have Sikh guards on board. And he, well, Frank describes that, and also that the passengers have to cage themselves in, in yeah. the event of a pirate attack. Fra Frank is there in the early 1920s when there is a massive resurgence of piracy, but it's changing. And he nails the two reasons that it's changing. One is technology, and the other is just the movement of people between two metropolises, if you like. 
on the technology side, of course, Chinese traditional pirate junks could not outrun the latest Royal Navy ships and submarines. So that fight was, was a bit lost. What they did was move to what they called the passenger ploy. They would infiltrate people onto the steamers. And when they were out at sea, they would then whip out their guns and everything and, and take control of it. Well, they could do this because there were so many people moving between cities and coastal towns in, in Guangdong, particularly Canton, and coming down to Hong Kong and Macau and, and different places. Um, so, so all of this was going on. And of course, and up again the coast to Amoy, to Fuchao, and up to, to Shanghai and so on. This was this scourge was all along the coast. But that was because so many people were moving around. They were moving around for commerce. They were moving around because they were dislocated due to warlord battles. They were, they were moving around because there were new places to go and live and work. They were coming to Hong Kong and they were going from Hong Kong back to trade in mainland China. And so there were many more people on these boats, meaning many more people to rob so you could get on board the boat. So it was required by the insurers, but also by the Hong Kong government as well, that there be cages that protected people, that you had divisions between where the crew were up on the deck through to first class and down into second and third class. But he's also seeing this incredible change which is taking place, which is all linked in to the road building he's seeing and the walls being removed and the seamen strike. This is all about this modern China that emerges in the 1920s. Yes, because so the Hong Kong government actually passes the piracy ordinance uh, around that time. Harry Frank, he's born in 1881 and yet, so he serves in the First World War, but he's not young when he's serving in the First World War. He's already early 30s or so. Yeah. Yet, I'm reading in your introduction to him that he actually serves in the Second World War, which would mean he's around 60 mark. Yeah, no, I think he, he managed to get himself uh, signed on to do something. I'm not sure what he did in the Second World War. But yes, he is one of that generation. There are a few that, that served in both world wars. And he, he went back to Europe in World War Two. Carried on travelling, never stopped. And then, of course, every time he would go back to America, he would be publishing his mm. books, he would be giving talks. It would keep on making money and making money. He and his wife had another three children. And I think... Perhaps of all of his books, the China ones are perhaps the ones that have sort of lasted best. I don't know if anyone really reads his Latin America stuff now, and no one really thinks about the Panama Canal Zone so much now, although his book about being a policeman there is quite interesting. That's all changed so much. The, the really interesting books that he did are the two books about his travels around China, roving around northern China and roving around southern China, and they're absolutely fascinating. And I think partly that is because he stops. This, this isn't the experience of one or two days or, or a week or two sojourn in these places. He rents a house and he lives there and he travels every day into the city and he sees these changes over a, a period of months and, and he, he has time to get around and see all of these new suburbs that are being built plus to get into the old laneways and alleys of Canton, plus to spend time on Charmian Island, this little peaceful foreign enclave, if you like, but guarded by foreign troops. And of course, at various times in the 1920s, had to surround itself with barbed wire and so on, and was, was under attack from all sorts of people. But when he's there, it's quite calm. And so he really manages to sort of, you know, to use a modern term, really sort of embed himself, particularly in Canton uh, for a while. And it's Canton that fascinates him. Hong Kong he sees as a little bit of like a colonial outpost and he's not overly keen on the British class system. And the, yeah, as he's it eminently and so, critical, isn't he? Yeah, he's fed up of governors and getting the front seat on the peak tram and all that sort of nonsense. Macau is this sinking pit of gambling despair that he, he doesn't seem to approve of. But it's Canton, it's that furnace of modernity at this great time of change that he manages to, to nail. 
And I think that's why why he was really worth republishing. Absolutely. And 100 years on, he's also, I mean, as I say, back to the women, he comments, you know, on the lily feet, so the, the, the bound women's feet, and his, he's absolutely appalled by that. He likes the fact that the sandbound women, the boat women don't, that, that they've got uh, able to just have their feet. And uh, he even comments that the mother of Sun Yat-sen had lily feet, of course. Um, but he said even in his period, of course, it's, it's dying out. And he says perhaps there is hope that the whole country will emancipate its women to that extent in another century. So he is quite modern in, in his outlook. He wants Republican China to succeed. And if you read a lot of the particularly English writers and French writers around this time, even though the French are Republicans, they're much more interested in, will the monarchy be restored? Will the boy emperor Puyi, you know, retain control? Will, will we deal with a warlord and create a new dynasty from that? You know, what, what is, you know, they're thinking in old ways. They're thinking about monarchies. They're thinking about colonial powers. And Frank is coming at it from a, from a very different perspective and he's a very different kind of guy. He's embracing the future. He wants China to embrace the future. He sees a group of people in Canton who are trying to do that and he wishes them well. My thanks to Paul French talking there on Harry A. Frank or as the American newspapers build him, The Prince of Vagabonds and Frank's book, Roving Through Southern China, an American's explorations of Hong Kong, Macau and Canton in the early 1920s. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.